Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When people talk about who could be a dark horse candidate for president of the United States, a name that comes up more often than not is Mitch Landrieu, the recently former mayor of New Orleans who got a great deal of attention for the way he handled the removal of Confederate monuments in that city and this stirring speech that he gave around that. I've known him for years and decided to go down and spend some time with him for my Axe Files on TV show. Here is the extended version of our conversation. Mitch Landrieu, good to see you. We're here in in your hometown of New Orleans in the Cafe Reconcile. Uh, Tell me why this is such a special place to you. Well, when I grew up, there was a Jesuit priest named Father Harry Thompson, who was the president of Jesuit High School, who after finishing that run actually became the pastor of a a, a downtown inner city church and started talking about ways to help kids and to connect uh, people with money with people who needed money. And he wanted to start a place where kids could have a better future. And so this street that Cafe Reconcile is on called Aretha Castle Haley Boulevard, named after one of our great civil rights leaders. Uh, a boulevard that used to be a very active business uh, section for the African-American community back in the day had really kind of fallen into tremendous disrepair. Uh, and he said that, look, we've got to go to, you know, the toughest of the tough places and find the people who need help most. And uh, they found this building, and this building was dilapidated. They wanted to try to find a way to teach kids a trade. Uh, and so a fellow named Craig Cucci worked with Father Thompson and started getting kids from the neighborhood and helping them actually rebuild the building. And then after that, they said, well, what are we going to do? And they said, well, why don't we start a training facility in, in New Orleans? We're specialists at culinary arts. Why don't we teach these young men and women how to wait tables? big industry in the Yeah, state. it's a huge, I mean, it's, an eight, it's a $5 billion industry with 80,000 jobs. But then somebody said, well, instead of just teaching these kids how to be waiters and waitresses and have jobs that may only pay a certain amount, why don't we teach them management skills? Why don't we teach them how to run a restaurant? Why don't we teach them how to run a business? And the children and the young people that are working here are kids that have lived the toughest of the toughest lives in America that we know. Some of them have been shot. Some of them were parents of children that have been shot. Um, Some of them are uh, young men and women that have served time in jail that have come out, and now they're actually running the facility. So now uh, not they too many years. go on from here. And they go on places. from here generally right now. Every restaurant, hotel, every business that's looking for really great employees comes here because these kids that in some instances, one of them had been shot three times, uh, actually now is working really hard. He's got a stable job, he's raising a family, and he's doing great stuff. And so this is, a, this is a really special place for many of us in the city, and it's a result of the work and the prayers and the, and the commitment of a lot of folks, not the least of which are these young kids who from the most difficult of circumstances, were courageous enough to, to work this, and this is their building now. The word reconcile, reconciliation, you know, I, I, I read your wonderful memoir that you put out this year, In the, in the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History, uh, and you write about your family, and it, it seems as if reconciliation, mm-hmm. racial reconciliation, has been kind of the mission of the Landrieu family for... 60 years. I mean, your dad went to the legislature, your dad, Moon Landrew, went to the legislature in, uh, the, at the height of the battle over civil rights and voted time and again against Jim Crow laws. He came to the city council, took the Confederate flag, led the fight to get the Confederate flag out of the city council, became mayor, and uh, desegregated the workforce, the city of New Orleans. You grew up around this this issue all your life. Yeah, I can't remember a moment in my life where 
um, race was not a part of it. It wasn't all reconciliation. It was a lot of battles. Um, my dad really, it was very interesting because he was 29 years old. He was married. He had four babies in home. My mother, who was a saint, had nine children in 11 years. They're both still alive. They're both happy. They have 38 grandchildren now. But back in 1960, when things were, I mean, really intense, um, this is right around when President Kennedy was elected, you know, a number of years before Dr. King was shot, and of course President Kennedy was shot. Things were really hot and tense. How he found the courage to vote against the segregation package. He was only one of two legislators. So I asked him, I said, well, you know, what were you, what were you thinking about? He said, well, I, I was really fighting for my friends. He had uh, befriended a young man on the first day of law school whose name was Norman Francis. Uh, and at that time, like my father, was gone out with my mother. He was gone out with another person. He was African-American. And everybody started ostracizing them. And he's, Norman was better looking, faster, and smarter than everybody else. And I, and I asked my father, he, he said, well, he informed me. He, he taught me about what it was like to walk in somebody else's shoes. Uh, and he said, I wasn't just fighting for Norman. He was, I was fighting for my right to be with my friends. And uh, we just kind of grew up in that ethos. And I can't remember, as I've written in the book, there have been a number of different examples throughout our life where, you know, white people have been really angry at us because they think... Well, you experienced that as a kid. No, you, I did you. when I was 13 years old. There was, you know, as, as, as you've covered local politics uh, and national politics, there are lots of protests that go on all the time. Back then, it was white people in the council chamber really trying to get in after the city of New Orleans because the city was becoming majority African-American. It was way on its way to it. And there were, you know, rabid people, you know, in the streets yelling and screaming about integration. And one of those people was Sylvia Pizzo, who, uh, who was just a, a really angry white lady that was really mad at my father for integrating the city. She said, you ruined the city. Um, you know, you let the black people take over. We're never going to be the same. We need to go back to how it was when we were in control. And <laughs> the story is that, that one afternoon at eighth period, Father Harry Thompson, the same priest that helped, you know, start this facility with the community, came to um, my classroom. Now, this is not the first time the principal has come to see me. I usually get yeah. called to the principal's office. But he came to the classroom to get me. And he said, you know, I need to walk you across the street uh, to the gym because there's been a death threat. Now, the first thing I thought about just when I was writing the book, that if there was a death threat of the mayor's son now, I mean, it would be like a big deal. And then he was just walking me across the street. I was like, well, is this it? So when I got over there, I was in the, uh, I was in the locker room. And, you know, of course, all my friends run in and say, there's some woman outside that says she wants to kill you. Now, we did what only teenagers would do. Instead of running hot, we ran outside <laughs> to see what was going on. And of course, there was this angry white woman who was just as, as uh, angry as she could be. And she went to reach in her purse, and one of my friends said, she has a gun. And of course, they did what great friends would do. They scattered to the winds and left me standing, <laughs> standing there by myself. And she took out a card and threw it. I remember it. She threw it at me. And it had written on it, your father's an end lover. He ruined the city. You know, you should be ashamed of yourself. And that was my first recollection. I wasn't an adult, but I was, I was old enough and mature enough to kind of get what that was. And I write in the book, um, not really being scared or being angry, but kind of being sad because it was pretty clear to me, I knew how wrong she was, but that she was not really in complete control you know, of her emotions at the time. So, I mean, even back then, it was part of all of our lives, but I wasn't unique. I mean, that happened to lots of people in the city, in the South all well, the time. Well, what was, you say back then, but when you made the decision to remove Confederate statues from places of honor here in New Orleans, you met with some of those very same yeah. reactions. Your children met with yeah. some of those very same yeah, reactions that was 40 of, years later. Yeah, that that's, that. That, that makes you understand that we're not, we're not really through the issue of race. You know, when President Obama got elected, the country went, oh, wow, we elected our first black president. Thank God we got finished with that. Now we're past it. And, of course, that's not true. Every day in America, uh, as we are witness to, African-Americans continue to suffer discrimination. Um, we continue to tear ourselves apart on the issue of race. John Lewis, who is, like, one of my heroes in, in life, um, admonishes people who don't think we've made any progress to say, look, I, John Lewis, am an example that we've made great progress, and we shouldn't say we haven't because of so many people that have suffered, but we, that mean, we still have a long way to go. 
And on the issue of race in America, which is, of course, um, the, the greatest fault line in American politics, I, I have just come to learn that you can't go over this, you can't go around it. You have to kind of go through it. You have to talk through it and work through it. And I, and I made a political miscalculation. Um, I, I had assumed that we were further along, that after the shootings in Charleston, when Governor Haley and, and, and Mayor Riley and the entire folks in South Carolina, in South Carolina finally took down the flag, I said, you know, uh, number one, flag. the Confederate flag, number one, it's time to take the monuments down. But secondly, everybody's going to get it. And everybody didn't get it. And it was much too hard a fight to have in the year that we had it than we should have. Uh, in fact, you're, so you got elected with overwhelming support and re-elected with overwhelming support of both uh, white and black residents of the city. Your, your support among uh, whites in New Orleans dropped by half. Yeah, this is worth noting, um, not just because I'm, I'm proud of it. And, I, and uh, when I first got elected uh, in 2010, I received about 66% of the vote, which is a lot. That's good in anybody's book, right? But what was really more gratifying about it is I got an equal number of white votes and black votes. Now, as a political junkie, you understand yes. that that's not replicated very many times because normally you put coalitions together of different groups and then it equals 50% plus one or a little bit more. Yeah. So the city was racially united when I came. When I got reelected, it was for the most part, you know, the same. When I took those monuments down though, it, 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 it really, really, really touched people in a much deeper way. And I didn't lose all of my white support, but I lost half of it in a way that will never come back to me. And what was curious to me as a politician is I, I've been involved, as you know, for 30 years. I was a legislator for 16 yes, years. I, when governor I met you, six. we both had hair. Oh, yes, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but, and I, and I have voted on some tough issues. And I have had people come up to me and say, you know, I didn't like the way you were voted on the abortion issue or on capital punishment or whatever, but I generally like you and think you're a good guy and I'll vote for you again. On this thing, it was, it was much deeper than any other action that I've taken where people said to me, I'll never ever support you again, which I thought was really curious because as tough as an issue as it is, it's not the toughest issue that the country is facing, but this one cut really, really, really deep. And, uh, and that surprised me a little bit, not with everybody, but certainly with some people. You actually wrote that uh, today's public square is teeming with hatred we haven't seen since the 1960s. Why, why do you think that is? I don't, I don't really know. I mean, it's too glib, um, isn't it, to say it's all because of Donald Trump? Yeah, because he not, seized on not, something and exploited it. Listen, I, I'm not a fan of the presidents, especially after you know, his, his show this week when he took a knee to Vladimir Putin. Um, but but it, is, it is not his cause. I mean, he didn't cause it. He's a symptom of it. He, now, he's a perfect fit for exacerbating it. And he knows that strategically division is working for him, even though it's working against the country. But there's a much deeper thing going on. And, and I'm not sure and I think it's too early to tell, that it's just restricted to the United States of America. There is a, well, there is a wave of, yeah. well, it's nationalism, and it's and, isolationism, and it and is nativism. A, and nativism. And so the reason I, I, I don't want to concentrate for the moment on this, just on President Trump, other than to acknowledge that he has been complicit and he has put the accelerator on it, is because it's a bigger issue for all of us and it's not just him. And if you remove him, you're gonna still have the same things. But it is worth noting that, that the, the, the germ, the seed of all of this is, is racial hatred and a sense of white supremacy, which is why in the book, I, I talk a lot about um, David Duke. And when David yes. Duke was in the legislature with me, uh, I, white supremacist, I, I, I sat with him, he was, he was a neo-Nazi, he was the leader of the Ku Klux Klan. He actually got elected to the legislature in Louisiana in 1990, and then subsequent to that ran for governor and ran for the United States Senate. And in one or both of those elections, got two out of every three white votes. So I have said in the book that we're not seeing anything now on the national level that we haven't seen in Louisiana relating to that racial issue, but it's critically important. As, as critical as it is to confront Russia, it is critical to talk about the cause of white supremacy because we have seen examples in our history 
um, that when one group of people think they're superior to another, atrocities occur. And one of them is slavery, one of them is the Holocaust, one of them is apartheid. You can see examples of where we as human beings have allowed ourselves, because we didn't check our worst impulses, to get to a place that create very dark moments in history. The seed gets planted someplace. It grows from somewhere. If you don't see it early enough, or if you don't reject that, and if you're not able to separate white supremacy from conservatism, for example, which should have wide berth in the United States as part of the, the fight for what direction we're going in, they're two very separate and distinct things. And that is why when we're talking about the issue of white nationalism or white supremacy, that has to be called out for what it is. And, and that's, I just thought it was important to state that in the book, which is one of the reasons why I wrote it. Well, you actually said the parallels between David Duke and President Trump as demagogues are breathtaking. His Make America Great Again slogan is the dog whistle of all time. Yeah, so if, if you spend any time in the South and you go speak to uh, most people, and particularly African Americans, and you say, I want to make America great again, They'll go, I mean, I want to make America great. They'll go, well, me too. But if you put the comma and again next to it, that is a dog whistle of epic proportions to people in the South who are saying, well, wh when, when were we great? Like exactly what years were we great? What were we doing? And by the way, do you know what I might have been doing at that time? So, you know, taking people back to a time when they didn't have the right to vote, taking people back to a time um, when racism was more prevalent than it is today, although it's still present, taking back to a time when people couldn't work, you know, to slavery, to Jim Crow laws. Nobody wants to go back there. Now, everybody who's an American wants our country to be the greatest country in the world. We all, I think, accept the fact that, that America is an exceptional country, primarily because the idea of America, one that's based on freedom, not race, not creed, not color, not sexual orientation, not nation of origin, but just the, the need to be free to feel liberty and to have justice. That is what makes America the greatest country in the world. Not the fact that in 1950, some people were doing well and we didn't care about other people at all. And so when, when people in the South hear that, they go, that's a dog whistle. And the reason why I compared him to David Do you Duke, think he's a racist? Do you think the president is a racist? Well, I'm, let me answer that question this way. If, if I said yes, the headline would be, mayor calls president something, president rejects it, and we never ever get to the issue. I would recommend that people judge other people based on their behavior. And when you see an individual who is speaking in a way or creating a policy that's based on race, creed, color, sexual orientation, check off the boxes, that is by definition racist behavior. And of course that is happening time and time and time again. And so I don't think there's any question that the president since the moment he began running for office when he said all Mexicans are rapists. Uh, or, or we're talking about Muslims being evil and terrorists, or uh, the fact that uh, this false equivalency in Charlottesville between white supremacists and the protesters. Uh, anybody that reads a, 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 a book on racism would say, that kind of you know, looks pretty good. And in the South, uh, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, I mean, it's usually a duck. And I think people have to be really circumspect about that and decide that that's not the kind of behavior or policies that we're going to have. Well, I'll take that as a, a yes. I mean, you, 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 you wound I your I, way I around I explained, there. But. I think I explained myself <laughs> what well that we, we ought to judge him. We, we, it's not about calling people names. It's about accurately and without judgment describing behavior. And if, if a person is acting a certain way, it's not untoward to say, well, have you thought about the possibility that that might be racist behavior? And that's not good. We should not be judging people in America based on those characteristics, but based on their behavior. And if you can stay focused on that, that'll usually take you to the right place. You, you watched what's going on at the border. Uh, do, you, do you think that's part of the dog whistling? Uh, we have this humanitarian well, crisis down there. Think about... Think about um, the answer to the question is yes. These are all different ways of exhibiting the same heart or the same mind, is that somehow these people are evil by nature of the fact that they're coming from a country, they're criminals. This zero tolerance policy is, is, is premised on the simple notion that if you come into our country, whether you are trying to evidently flee persecution or not, by definition, remember, they use the word criminal. It's a misdemeanor offense. That would be akin to calling your mother a criminal for running a red light. 
and getting pulled over. That's a misdemeanor offense. But you wouldn't attach the word criminal to that. You would say they broke the law, and within measure, there's a way for us to handle that appropriately to make sure that people don't do the wrong thing. And so when, when you continue to judge people based on those characteristics, it, it, it makes Americans afraid of them. Because if you can make them afraid, then you can get rid of due process, you can get rid of constitutional requirements, you can get rid of all of those things and begin to oppress. That's not a good place for us to be as a country. You twice were, you elected lieutenant governor of this state, twice. a state that gave Donald Trump uh, a 20-point victory and where he's still yeah. very popular. He's so, doing well here. And, and you wouldn't call uh, all those folks who voted for you and voted for him uh, no, racist. No, no, I would but not. But what is it that is, is, is well, provoking this support? That's, a, that's an excellent question. So let me, let me see if I can address it um, specifically. Not every person that voted for Donald Trump is a racist. There are some people, not everybody that was against taking the monuments down was a racist. It's clear that there are a portion of people who are voting for him uh, are voting for him for that reason, but certainly not everybody, because as you know, nationwide, there are many people that voted for President Obama, that voted for President Trump. They, in, in essence, are uh, frustrated with the fact that Washington is broken. And you know what? They're right. Congress is completely incapable of solving any problem. As a matter of fact, i just been having this kind of funny talk with myself when I talk to myself from time to time, and my kids say, Dad, you sounding whack. Yeah. I'm having this vision that Paul Ryan could help save America. He's the one person that could actually do something wonderful for us and courageous on his way out the door to prove to people that Washington is not broken. And it's pretty simple. On Monday, he would call 435 members of Congress who were duly elected to the floor and say, we're going to have an exercise in democracy. I'm opening up the floor for complete and total debate on any number of issues, pick immigration, infrastructure. Everybody can offer amendments. We're going to stay here and debate it, just like they do in the House of Commons or in other deliberative bodies. And by the end of the week, we're going to come out with an answer, and we're not leaving till then. And I think that would be a demonstration that Congress could actually work. Very few Americans know that that's not how Congress works, that you don't even get to talk about an issue unless, unless the group of people who make the most noise actually give you permission to do it. And that would normally be the far left or the far right side of whatever party is in power. Most of us that operate at kitchen tables that have arguments, we throw it on the table, we argue about it, we don't leave until we find a solution if, if our life hangs in the balance and we figure it out. And I think that he would do the country a great service by doing things just like that. Well, we talked about one issue, immigration reform. There, there is a majority in the House apparently for some comprehensive approach to immigration And reform. they're being prohibited from talking about it. Yeah. I mean, that's why the American people, back to, you know, what their frustration is and why some of them voted for President Trump. The, the, this, this last election, to me, is, was not really about Donald Trump. It really wasn't about Hillary Clinton, although those were the two, you know, personages in whom people could, could vent their anger and their frustration. But when you look at Operation Wall Street or you look at the Tea Party and, and that whole thing, it is fair to say that people in America are feeling alienated and forgotten and left out. There's a good case to be made that, that uh, white people, poor people, um, didn't make it into the mainstream either. A case to be made that uh, African Americans are completely and totally justified that the criminal justice system is treating them badly. Uh, there's a case to be made that the institutions are not functioning for the people who need it the most. And all of that frustration found itself and manifests itself in the election of President Trump. Now, of course, people who are a lot smarter than me are going to have to figure out whether the 80,000 votes were really a plus for him or a, mm -hmm. who the heck knows. But if you had two other candidates, it may have turned out some other way. But I don't think you can deny the fact that the country right now is, is in a bad spot. I happen to think that the country is not nearly as divided as we think it is because the division comes in our reflection of what the president is doing and what Congress is doing. If you go anywhere in this country any day on Sundays, go to a football game, go to a soccer game, go to the Jazz Fest in New Orleans where there are 500,000 people, go to church, you know, go to barbecues, go to an airport, just go sit in an airport and sit there and watch. <laughs> I've done that a And lot. watch, of course, but yeah. do, this, do, it, do it with this prism. Go sit there and watch who walks by you you will see the, the rainbow of the entire world walk by you. And it essentially, we have commerce that goes on every day. People are working together. Um, and and if, if we try to find common ground, if that is our purpose, if we try to build consensus, we will find common ground 
and consensus. If we don't, if you win by division, which is essentially what the president seemingly has, as a matter of strategy, strategy decided to do, yes. and you're the leader of the free world, you could divide people every day. That's not hard. I worked for a guy who made a speech that catapulted him into the national conversation, uh, Barack Obama at the convention in 2004. You made a speech that is the prem that's sort of the organizing theme of this book when you took these statues down that went viral. And uh, yeah, that was weird. <laughs> yeah, why do you think it was? I, I you made know. the speech in New Orleans. It wasn't to a national audience, no. but it reached a national yeah. audience. Why were people so hungry for the message uh, of that well, speech? Well, first of all, just as an observer of, of the weirdness of, of public oratory, when um, Governor Cuomo gave the speech back in 1984 as the keynote, you know, people prized those spots I because that's what they wanted to. Francisco, I was there as well. Yeah. I was physically there. I watched it. It was really one of the best speeches that I've ever heard in the history of the country. It was beautifully mm -hmm. delivered and it was beautifully written. And then when President Obama did it, that is typically the launching pad when people want to go do other things. When I gave this speech, I, I, I gave this speech in New Orleans to a local audience. I was actually delivering a, a, a speech not only to the people of New Orleans, but to, to white working class people as an invitation to see things in a different way, to explain the facts that had never been explained to them, to talk about what the real story is and inviting them to think about things differently in an effort to reconcile. The, re the word reconciliation was really important in the book. Right. One of the things I've written, although it's painfully hard for all of us to do this, that the six most important words in the English language are I am sorry and then I forgive you. And they both have to exist, which means you have to recognize that something was wrong and then somebody has to say, well, okay, I get it, I receive it, now I want to move to the next thing. And I was, I was really shocked that anything that I said went viral because, as you know, 30 years of public service, you give a lot of speeches. Yeah. And some of them you think are pretty good. <laughs> Nobody pays attention to any of them. But what does it say about the country that that one uh, well, was so what's interesting is when I started doing this, when I started working on the monuments, it was 2014. So it was well before the presidential race started. And the national angst about race, although it had always existed, was not, you know, at a 10. When President Trump got elected, and then after that, the angst in the country really got hot. So we just as a matter around this yeah, issue so in Charleston, just, correct? In, in just as a matter of course, say. I think that maybe the public said, you know what, there there is a pathway to reconciliation. Why don't we think about finding it? Because since this book was written, and since we took down these monuments, I think a hundred have been taken down around the country and it's forced people really to kind of step back and think about what they would do if they were in that circumstance and you know so I'm glad it's been helpful in some regard. So Mitch, I, I want to ask you this and I and I, I don't want you to be I don't want you to go into politician evasive tactics here. People talk about you as a presidential candidate uh, and partly because of this message and because there is this sense that we are deeply divided and it's not healthy for the country and it's it's wearying uh, for the country. Uh, how seriously are you thinking about it? Well, a couple things. First of all, it would be disingenuous of me to tell you that I don't hear that. I mean, a lot of people call and ask and talk. Um, but I've been doing this for 30 years now, so I listen to that with skeptical ears. I know, first of all, how hard it is to get elected and secondly, how hard the job is and how many people there are out there that would like to do the same thing. So when you're thinking about something like that, you really got to think about it hard. You got to be 100% in, um, and you have to be the one who is best suited to do that. Uh, I say this with, with great sincerity. One of the challenges that America has is we keep waiting on somebody to come save us, when in reality, my thought is you don't have to be the President of the United States to change the world. It's clearly the most important job, I believe, in the world, in the country, and the most powerful person. But um, there are other ways to do that. And so I, I hear that and I'm thinking about it. I, when you say seriously, I am not doing what other people are doing, which is to say I'm not running it and then preparing to or setting up all of these apparatuses. There are a lot of really good people that are thinking about that. The most important thing though, David, and I'm not trying to, to skirt the issue, especially given this week, the way the president handled himself on the world stage, where he humiliated the United States of America, and as I said before, took a knee With Putin. to Putin. Collusion in motion is what we witnessed this week. That it's gotta be clear, even to some of 
uh, President Trump's most ardent supporters, those who supported him because of trade or the economy, that, that this week was a bridge too far, that you can't have a coach plan for the other team. It would be like Bill Belichick giving Sean Payton the playbook right before they went into the Super Bowl. That's essentially what happened, uh, unless it was unclear to the Republican leadership about whether or not there's a connection between us and Russia. We just witnessed something that no president in the history of the United States has ever done. Why do you think that was? Do you think? You know what? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not interested in figuring it out anymore. Um, president Trump has us all spinning around in circles trying to figure out why he does what he does. What we need to be focused on is what his behavior is and what his decisions are and ask themselves whether it makes America stronger or make America weaker. And I think that he weakened us in a way that we've never been weakened before. And, and he should be ashamed of himself for the way he handled it. More importantly, putting that issue aside, we need to start figuring out how to work around him as a country and how to contain Hard him. Hard to work around the president. Well, it's, but actually it's not impossible. That's why the founding fathers set up a something called checks and balances. The if balance the Congress of power, is willing to this is essentially exercise. correct. So the presidency, is, as you know, because you worked in the White House, is an extraordinarily powerful office, and it should be actually believe in having a strong chief executive, but also respect the Constitution and the balance of power. And it is possible for the Speaker of the House to grow some courage um, and to start checking the president's power. And there are lots of different ways that we can do that. So I am I'm heartened by the fact when Newt Gingrich pops the president, you can say he's, he's now off the rails. And, and I think Speaker Gingrich did that. Um, Senator Flake and, and a whole myriad of Republicans mm -hmm. have spoken out, but talk is cheap. And the question is, what are you really now going to do to protect the security of the United States of America from a president that obviously doesn't really understand who our true allies are and who our true enemies are? And they have to do something. That's the first thing. The second thing that has to happen, and it's clear as day now, some Republicans are going to have to hold their noses and vote for Democrats uh, in the congressional race because Congress, if it will not do its job and it has not done its job, are going to have, they're going to have to change them. And you know what? If those folks don't do their job, they're going to have to change them as well because this isn't about party anymore. This is about country. And the Republican Party has always prided itself on being the party of faith, family, and country, although I think the Democratic Party is as well. But, but how, how, do you, how do you really kind of maintain that sense of I'm a true patriot when you're allowing your leader to actually, you know, give to Russia whatever it is that they think they need. When, when Mitt Romney was running so many years ago, he said, that's our number one enemy. Ronald Reagan's turning over in his grave. I can assure you of that. Well, uh, so you think this was a watershed moment in the last... Well, I mean, I have no idea. I mean, how many watershed moments can I know, you have I before know. I, people... I, I mean, that, but I, I have to we tell don't... you, I feel, I, I've seen, uh, I've been told many times, inclu including when there was a leak in the Gulf here that you had to deal with as a newly elected mayor. Uh, we were told this is Obama's Katrina. This will define the next election. But it was handled, and it never came up in the next election. So we're told all the time that these are yeah, watershed events. This one feels different. A, a lot of them have felt different to me. Mm -hmm. I think you know, as a as just a political hack, not you, me. <laughs> you can include that. Me. No, 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 no. You know, for those, of us that are, for those of us that are junkies, I mean, I think we like policy and everything, but we get into the weeds mm -hmm. on, on the X's and O's yeah. and this stuff. That everything we thought we knew about politics has not come to be. So that's, that's a little bit confusing. There is a silver lining in it, is that the country is tougher and more resilient than we thought it is, and the American people are more circumspect. At some point in time, though, it becomes clear and obvious whether the president is working uh, on behalf of the American people or against them, whether he's making us stronger or weaker, whether or not we're heading in the right direction or wrong direction. Now, one of the fundamental questions that it, it seems to me that we're going to have to face is um, at what cost are we willing to take people's civil liberties away? Freedom and liberty versus civil liberties is one of them. The other is, um, if the economy's doing well, does nothing else matter? Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, you've heard the whole adage. It's interesting. It's not, it, yeah. it, 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 he should be getting more of a... Well, if you think about it, you know, he says, well, you know, I'm good because the economy's doing great. But if, if President Obama, you know, had, had taken office and within the first year, he didn't have the catastrophe that he had. And he had these kind of numbers. His poll numbers would be at 60 or 70 percent. When President Bush, G.W. Bush, was in office after the Gulf yeah, War, he no, had a 90 percent no, approval there, rating. No doubt. So I think, I think you can't say that it's not having an impact. The, the more important question is why his base will stay with him no matter what. And you know what? Even if they will, 
it is incumbent upon those people that are not in his base but like him for certain things to finally say, listen, this doesn't work anymore. Uh, it doesn't matter how high the stock market is or what the return to the shareholders is or what the unemployment rate is. You cannot basically undermine the very essence of what the United States of America is because I can't last for a long time. Uh, and begin to cavort with our enemies. That just doesn't work for us. So what kind of, can I would leave yourself out of it for now. Uh, what kind of candidate do you think uh, needs to, to run in 2020 to, to be an effective counterpoint uh, to Trump? I mean, right. describe the qualities you think that candidate needs to have. Well, uh, that's, a, that's an excellent question because the Democratic Party can always be counted on to shoot itself in the foot. We've done that many, many, many times, and to have an internecine war between and amongst us uh, in a non-constructive way. If it was a constructive primary, then, as you know, um, the Democratic Party, much like the Republican Party at a family food fight, will have a number of different iterations. You have uh, the progressive wing of the party really tilting uh, to the left. Uh, you see this in a number of elections that have happened. Uh, then you have uh, basically uh, the moderates. Then you have people that are kind of fall into both of those categories that are inside and outside players. Just for me, you know, the, this notion of having a new, young Macron come along, that may happen. Uh, I'm, I'm more of a traditionalist. You know, I would like somebody with great experience. I would like somebody that could restore America's statue in the world on day one. I would like somebody that knows exactly what they're doing because they've done that before, that can stabilize and just rebalance the country for four years. I think what people... Sounds like in, you're kind of describing I, Joe Biden. I, I think I am, honestly. I think that if I, if I had to pick today, I would, I would... And he could take over tomorrow and, you know, life would be a lot better for everybody. And plus, he understands working-class folks uh, in, in a way that um, most people don't. Now, the knock on him, of course, is unfair, is that he's an old guy. Well, he's pretty energetic. And he's He'll he, be he 78. Has, yeah, I mean, in 78's the you know the new 60s. So I'm not I'm not really that worried you're about older, that. So I hope you're right. I mean, that's that. what I hope too. I mean, the older I get, the more I'm for the old guys. But but you know, one of the challenges is going to be uh, in the Democratic Party, and this is a legitimate challenge for us to have: is that the future is at the past. Why are we going back if we want to go forward? The country, in my opinion, needs stability. We need to rebalance for a short period of time, and I think. That, that that is the order of the day. Remember, we should always be playing the long game here. We should always be doing things that are gonna make us better, it, you know, out and laying a foundation. That's when, when I was mayor of the city, er, almost every decision I made, when I had to choose between getting a quick political win or digging deep and setting it up for the future, I always took the, the you know, the, the digging deep and set it up for the future. Now, you don't get the political plus right away because people may not see that you completely change the pension system and mm -hmm. the city's going to benefit from years later. But that kind of is what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and so, I, listen, I have a high regard, a high regard for all of the individuals on the Democratic side around. We have some really good talent. And by the way, a deep bench, much like the Republican Party did that Trump wiped out and wiped off the stage. There were some pretty good people on that stage, even though I don't agree with their view of the world. They were real deal, you know, folks. Um, and I think it's going to play out that way. But for my liking, I think stability, uh, I think certainty, I think a good world view, I think experience, all that stuff should matter more to the world uh, at the moment than anything else. You, you know, a number of mayors are uh, considering... Yeah, some really good ones. Mayor Garcetti, uh, He's a great guy. Pete uh, Buttigieg of uh, South Bend, Correct. Indiana. Um, when you talk about, but what you're describing doesn't seem to speak to the mayors. I mean, well, well, no one's ever been elected president as a mayor. That's true. And do you think mayors have the experience uh, necessary yeah. to run the country? Actually, but I, yes, uh, but, but I want to I stay clearly about this. Right now, this notion of, well, it should be a senator or a governor, should a mayor, that's not nearly as important as, is there a right person out there to stabilize and balance the country? That's a separate and distinct issue. If we were in a normal time, and we're not in a normal time, we're in an abnormal time, and the reaction shouldn't be worse than the action, it should be very thoughtful, then my view might be different about who, who should ascend to the, the nomination of the Democratic Party. As it relates to mayors, though, I don't, I don't think there's another job in America that actually prepares you to be president better than being a mayor of a major American city. Because, Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, 
a senator or a congressman are basically advocates for a cause. That's essentially what they are. And their advocacy turns into a law which the president and the executive branch then needs to execute. Mayors are executing every day. That's what they do. They are, in fact, CEOs. Now, I think they're a little bit closer to the ground than governors are, and they see their actions in real time. Mm -hmm. And other than... Um, you're, also more, you're also more exposed. I mean, you, <laughs> well, you, get, a, you get immediate feedback from your constituents. Well, let me tell you how that works, because I, I have gotten laced you know, more <laughs> times than I'd like to. But in the morning, if, if my wife says, you know, our son William, who's the fifth of our five children, has got to go to school, we don't have any break, and you run to the store and grab some milk, you know, by the time I get out of my car, get that milk and get back to my car, I have been spoken to in ways that would make you blush if the day before you did something that the people didn't like. When I go to the cleaners, when I'm at the market, when I'm at a restaurant, what happened to Sarah Huckabee Sanders? That ha that's happened to me before What'd because you you're in that? it. I, I, didn't, I didn't like that. That made me really uncomfortable. I actually have strong feelings about it. Obviously, um, don't agree with Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, on, but she's doing a job. And there has to be some private space for individuals that, have, that are working on behalf of the public to live. And there, there is a separation between the two. So I fully uh, believe that people ought to have a right to protest in reasonable time, place, and manner. You can be vociferous as you want, as passionate as you want. But at some point, there has to be a line um, because then it's impossible to work. Plus, I thought it was just plain rude. And I don't think that we have to, we're not going to beat them by being like them. You know what I mean? That's not, that wasn't good. And I, I, didn't, I didn't like that very much, to be honest with you. I said something similar. I got a very strong reaction from a lot of people who said, these aren't ordinary times. You have to take extraordinary measures. Well, there, there are extraordinary measures that people could take. Go vote. How, how, how would that be for an extraordinary measure? And secondly, yes, protest every day. Protest every day. Go, go get thousands of people and, and storm the streets of the city. But do it in a, do it in a passionate but respectful way, accosting people at their homes or in private spaces, that's going to lead. Listen, for every action, there's going to be an equal and opposite reaction. You know, in Filler on the Roof, there's a whole thing that said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and soon we'll all be blind and toothless. That, that in America, we can fight really, really hard, and we can hit each other, but you have to do it, you know, in the appropriate way. You can't spear somebody in the head with a helmet. That's a, that's a bad lick, as we like to say. And so I would say, you know, to the Democrats, let's get after it. I think that we can win this back. I think that everybody in the country, as I said, if they really want to check the president and honor the Constitution, only Congress can do that. And if Congress will not act of their own volition, you got to change them. And then if the next guys don't do it, throw them out again until they get it right. You say every reaction creates, uh, every action creates a reaction. What was your, uh, what's your reaction to the movement among some Democrats to abolish ICE. That's a bad idea. Um, I had, as you know, when I was mayor, a consent decree on our police department. We had to completely reform the way the police interacted so that it became a part of the community, engaged in community policing. But we never said we were going to get rid of the police department. We said that we were going to fix it. Uh, the, border, the border agents, all of them are operating at the direction of the President of the United States. Everything that they're doing is at his direction. That is where the problem is. So I would not abolish ICE. I would, I would refocus their attention on making sure that they take care of people and not hurting people. I, I really can't think of a, of a crueler thing that I've seen a politician do than separating mothers from their children. I think that really speaks poorly of the president and it, do, it doesn't reflect well on the president, of the, uh, it doesn't reflect well on our country and it was really wrong. What did you uh, learn from your dad about politics and growing up in a home. He was in office from the time you were born uh, through all of your formative years. Uh, you yeah. grew, what did you learn about politics? Uh, well, first him? of all, I loved it. Not, not all of my brothers and sisters. I have eight brothers and sisters. Yeah. And, and I kind of took to your it. Your sister Mary, who was the eldest, she, she took was. to it. She was Very a bossy. three term senator <laughs> from Four. this state. Four, she'll remind you. Uh -huh. um, and she, and, and, uh, she was a state treasurer, and, and she was a great role model for me as well. You know, both my mom and dad came uh, from a focus of service. Uh, we're Catholic. We were born kind of into the uh, ethos during the Civil Rights Movement. My mom and dad were always about helping other people, and that was true in politics. It was true in private life. My other brothers and sisters that are not in politics are always helping other people. And 
I can remember just really liking what my dad did and hanging out with him. So I used to like jump in the car on, on Saturdays when he was mayor. He'd go in the car and he'd drive around the city, which is what mayors do. Yeah. They drive around so they can look at the pothole or look at the I light work that's for out. Rich Daly. So you know. Yes. And he would come home. I don't even. You never told me this, but he would come to the office and say that power that that, oh, yeah. that, that plant that's on Second the worst and time First Street. City Hall was when he got into the office because he'd drive to. Every day uh, a different route to correct. see what, whether correct. this abandoned building had been taken correct. down, whether this light was fixed. Yeah, and he'd trick you. And he'd say, well, who was supposed to fix it? He'd say, oh, we talked about it. It's fixed. It's not fixed. I was out there today. <laughs> Get you behind out there and fix it. And so he would do that, and I would, and I would ride around with him, and I liked it. But he would, he would always tell me, you know, really, in the course of life, without being theoretical, be fair, you know, be just, um, treat other people well. And he would always tell me something that really got later in my life, just like bothered the hell out of me. Because in politics, people will do things to you that make you angry, so you want to hit them back. And uh, when I go to him, I'd say, well, what do you think I should do? And he, said, he would say, play your politics in the future. Mm-hmm. It just reverberated my mind. Play your politics in the future. Whatever happened, don't ignore it. But ask yourself, what's the, what's the smart thing to do? Not the I'm going to get you back thing. What's the wise thing to do? you know, for the right reason. And that, that always was, was helpful to me. He also told me the day before I took over, which was prescient, he reminded me of this the other day, actually, about how smart he was uh, and how wise he was. The night before, I said, you, ha- you know, I took the oath of office as mayor. I said, you have anything that, I mean, anything that you haven't told me in the last, you know, so many years. He said, yeah, tomorrow at 12 o'clock, he said, you will own every pothole in the city. Mm-hmm. And that turned out to be literally true and it turned out to be figuratively true because nothing happens in a city that the public doesn't say, that's your, that's your fault and your responsibility. Which is why, again, back to the issue of are mayors writ large capable of being president, I would say it's the best training ground. And it's really surprising to me that it hasn't happened, but it makes a lot of sense just because mayors don't have the same public platform that, that senators do. They're not in the same wheelhouse of publicity like in New York or Washington, D.C. So it's hard for them to get their platform. But I assure you, of the 1,400 mayors in America, there are many of them that are capable of doing that job and doing it really well. Uh, you wanted the job so much that you ran for it several times oh, before got you beat, got it. Yeah, three times. What did you, uh, you learn? First of all, did, I should ask you before I ask that, was there a concern uh, when you got into a lot of there's a weird relationship between kids and their parents who are in politics because there's a legacy that you uh, have to live up to. Did you have any concern about getting into that terrain, you know, people calling you Half Moon or... Well, they did. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff actually, like that. They actually did. That was actually my brother's nickname, Half Moon, because he was the <laughs> oldest brother. I was Quarter Moon. Um, people always did that. The first time I ran, I was 28 years old, and I was at a place called the Hope House, which was in the shadow of what then was called the St. Thomas Housing Project. And I remember the woman, her name was Jesse Smallwood. She's a friend of mine today. I was, you know, bloviating and trying to impress As candidates do. As candidates do. I mean, I was just really putting on the dog. And she looked at me, she said, boy, she said, you know, you would not be sitting here if it wasn't for your father. Now, I, I, I went to college, I went to law school, I was smart. And I started to kind of take umbrage at it, and then I finally said, you know, you're probably right. That name helped a lot. Now, when you have a name like that, it gets you in the door, but then you do have to perform. And you take the good and the bad with it. It is more, like, it is more of a plus rather than a negative, depending on what name you're carrying. It's, it's not true for everybody, but I never really worried that much about it. You have to check your ego every now and then, which for me is kind of hard to do from time to time. Well, losing helps you check your ego. Yeah, that helps a lot. It's awful to lose. It's, a, it's just a miserable, there's nothing good about that. You know how people say, oh, it's a, you do learn from it because you'd be an idiot not to learn from, you know, the stupid things you do that cause you to lose. Um, but it's not, it's not fun. You would never choose to do that. But I lost twice. And I've always wanted to be, I mean, just in, in my DNA, I've always wanted to be mayor of the city of New Orleans. But the second time I lost, I actually just kind of put the dream away, and I'd become lieutenant governor. And politically, I, I, if I thought about going forward, I would run for governor. And Katrina happened, you know. And, uh, and I, I had run once, of course, and I got beat by Mayor Nagin mm-hmm. at a time well, when I shouldn't have gotten beat. I should not have gotten beat. I should have won that election, but I did. So when you look back over your life of 40 years, I've run nine times, you know, won seven, lost two. 
and you think, mm, you know, is that, does that record kind of, what does that look like? And, you know, you think about things that you might have done, things that you didn't do, and you game it out. I guess just like golfers do, they can remember the exact hole, you know, where, where they where were. They blew the putt. Yeah, when they blew the putt. It's, it's the more interesting thing to me about that and decisions that I make is why you, you make an error. You know, why, why, why did you decide wrongly? Because if you think about that, it's always usually because you don't have enough information. Your ego got the best of you. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're under time pressure. And, and so you get better at time of putting yourself in a position where you can make good decisions rather than bad decisions. And surrounding yourself with good people is, is really the, 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 the key to doing well. You walked into a city that was in desperate shape in 2010, still reeling from Katrina, fiscal problems and so on. You did a lot of great work to uh, deal with those issues. The one issue that you struggled with right to the end was violence and uh, violent crime, uh, gun crime, homicides. Uh, talk about that because you wrote right very movingly in this book about the experience of having to go console fathers and mothers and children who had lost a father or a mother. Uh, talk about that. Well, first of all, serving was really the greatest honor of my life. It was a, it was a tough, tough, tough eight years. We rebuilt a great American city. The city continues to have the same kind of normal problems that age-old cities have, like infrastructure and, and things of that nature. But um, from the moment I stepped into office, I knew on the one hand that I had to be a good functionary. I had to, I had to make the city run well. Um, but one of the issues that I still don't have a handle on, don't understand and won't accept, is the number of deaths of young African-American men on the streets of America that nobody seems other than the parents and their family members. I'm talking about writ large to want to spend a lot of time on. And I think it's a fixable problem. And so it's something that I really wanted to know and understand. How is it a fixable problem? I mean, I come from Chicago, and obviously well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> tremendous issues there related I'm, I'm to... I'm walking by faith here, not by sight. And, uh, and remember, historically, that at some point in time, we had the mafia, um, still do to a certain extent, but back then there was carnage in the streets every day. You had the Wild West where people were getting shot, and we found a way to cure these violent patterns in our behavior over time. So this isn't rocket science. This is human beings hurting other human beings, mostly with guns. What I didn't want to do, although I, I feel very strongly that um, most of America agrees that we don't need every kind of gun all the time for anything, and that thoughtful and reasonable gun ownership um, that's handled in the right way is something that all of us can be in favor of. And I think that if Congress put it on the floor and we argued about it, we, we could get to a reasonable place recognizing that people have a Second Amendment right to, to possess firearms. There is an You answer come there. from a very pro-gun Yeah, this is state. Louisiana. You, I mean, all had, of us You hunt. would talk like this when you were running for lieutenant governor. Uh, no, I'm not would, sure that... It would be difficult for you, wouldn't it? A, a little bit, but what I'm saying is I, I do think that there's, there's, there, the, okay, there are the extremes and then there's the middle. In the United States of America, most Americans intuitively, although they may not be constitutional scholars, understand that written throughout the entire Constitution, in every facet of it, in its DNA, is a balance between mm -hmm. rights and responsibilities. And there is a right, but there's a responsibility to handle the right appropriately. Our political dialogue right now goes to either it's a right or a responsibility, not a combination of the two. So the most important word when you're interpreting the Constitution is balance. Across the board, balance. What is the balance? between your right and then your responsibility to handle that right uh, in a thoughtful way. And I think it's true about the Second Amendment. There are some people that don't believe people have an individual right to bear arms. I do. I think the hell of decision was, you know, clear. But it also said that there can be reasonable restrictions and we've never gotten to that. So I think most people in America think that background checks are good. I think responsible gun training. I think most people think that's, that's, that the, those things are fine. But as you get into the, to the city of New Orleans, I didn't want to really focus on that so much. I wanted to explore the notion that violence is a public health threat, that it transmits itself like a virus, 
that, it, that it's a behavioral pattern that develops over time, not just because of personal choices, but because of conditions that people live in. And so I just simply wanted to save kids' lives. It was really clear. You know, my mission was to protect the city, but most importantly, I wanted to protect the most vulnerable and the kids that were most at risk in my city, in our wonderful city, was young African-American men. And I spent eight years really working on it. Now, we got the murder rate down to its lowest it's been since 1970. However, I mean, I just want to quickly say this, that number is still stratospherically too high. And in cities in America, in Baltimore and Chicago, even in some neighborhoods in New York, who has miraculously reduced their murder mm -hmm. rate dramatically, you have young men that are being killed at, at, at numbers that are just not acceptable. I, I have, a, I have a, 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 an aggressively negative feeling um, about Congress's prohibition of the federal government doing research on gun violence. Yeah. That's just not that's smart. That's a function of the NRA's That would be power. like saying, well, wh whoever did it, that, but it would be the equivalent of saying Ebola's coming over here, which, which it did, and we're not going to look at this. We're not going to understand this. We should this. point out that the, the CDC, uh, the Center on Disease Control, is prohibited from studying, even though... Right. Uh, gun deaths are a, a major cause of, Correct. of, of you death would, in the country. In, in, a, in, in, in this country, it is common practice when there is a problem to identify the problem, to study the problem, and to find a solution. That's really simple. When somebody says there's a problem, but I don't care about it, so we're not going to study it, and I don't care if there's a solution, I mean, that's just, you know, not, not good. And on the issue of violence, like on the issue of opioids and on the issue of suicide, there are things that we can know. And in my life, without being cute about this, if there's something you should know, you should know it. Mm -hmm. You should figure it out. If, if you had a child that had cancer, you wouldn't want somebody to come to you and say, no, I'm sorry, the CDC is prohibited from doing research on what might cure your child's illness. That's not smart for a country that, that wants to and be a smart And maybe what country. we should be doing is encouraging projects like Cafe Reconcile all over this country Correct. And, and programs Correct. that are bubbling up from the communities Correct. that have the uh, potential to give hope and opportunity to Correct. kids who don't have it. Well, let me give you, an, let me give you just a couple of, uh, of examples. It is true. It, it, well, let me, let, me, let me start off with the hard stuff. It is not true that guns don't kill people. Guns do kill people, and people use guns to kill people. So that we need to speak the truth. But it's not just guns. It is, in fact, people using guns inappropriately. So you ask yourself, well, why is that happening? What else can we do? Well, first of all, education is really important. Early childhood education, um, the brain development from zero to three for a lot of these young you know, kids who are growing up in difficult circumstances. The environment is important. The lack of jobs is important. Housing is important. Um, workforce training is important. Treat teaching reconciliation to kids early on, all of these things that surround the notion that violence is not just a public safety threat, a public health threat are important, which gets you to really kind of your approach on life. You can be as tough as you want on dealing with a problem, but you have to be smart too. You can be tough on the problem and soft on the people and still get to a really good constructive place where everybody is working towards a common goal. But you have to want to seek and find common ground. If uh, It's not hard for me as a guy that talks pretty good to go into the community and completely disrupt it by, by scaring you and saying that guy over there is coming to get you. So, well, I know him. Yeah, yeah, but he changed his mind. He's really coming to get you. And all of a sudden, people it, are tense, yeah. they're hot, they're into it, and you're starting a fight rather than, than solving a fight. That's just not what we're supposed to be doing as leaders, not just political leaders, but church leaders and business leaders. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I have a, you know, about the whole Trump thing, my question is not about Donald Trump. He's clear to me. I mean, if, if nobody's, if people are still unclear about who he is or what they is, they're just, they're just not watching and not listen. He is exactly what he has said he is. So why do we keep, you know, getting cons uh, interested when he manifests himself the way he said he was going to be? The more interesting question is, why aren't people stopping him from doing those things? Why are they being complicit in their silence? Why aren't they speaking up? and saying that is a bridge too far. That to me is the much more You're interesting about, question. Yeah. I'm talking about politicians and business leaders. One of the burdens on a mayor is to provide security in the community with regard, uh, with, at the same time with regard to civil rights Correct. of your constituents. This issue of the police and community relationship, uh, excessive force on the part of police, 
this is the issue that caused NFL players to kneel. Uh, how do you uh, how do you resolve that uh, really really difficult question? Well, first of all, it is, it is a really difficult question. The first and the most important thing is safety and security. But again, as I said, one of the great issues is how do you balance safety with civil liberties? If you took everybody's civil liberties away and you searched people's houses and without regard to warrants, you could seize everything that everybody had, but of course you would cease to be a free country. So that's been a, that's been a uh, really challenge from the beginning. In the city of New Orleans, when I, when I became mayor, as I said, the Federal Department of Justice was coming into the city because we had had way too many police-involved shootings. We had a horrible incident on the Danzinger Bridge where right after Katrina, a number of police officers killed a number of innocent citizens. Mm -hmm. And we had to reestablish the relationship between the police and the community because if the community doesn't trust the police, they won't call them. Mm -hmm. And then they settle their differences themselves, and that turns into chaos. So you have to go through this very aggressive process of retraining police officers to know when to use force and when not to. And essentially, without going into all the details because it's a very mm -hmm. long, complicated thing, the use of force can never be the first thing. It always has to be the last thing. And police have to be part of the community. They have to be from it and of it and working to it. If you're not doing that, then you're not in a position to actually keep the community safe. Now, there are some people who think that police ought to carry around batons, they ought to beat people, they ought to shoot them whenever they want. That, that just is, that's just awful. And it, that's what the, the issue of profiling was about. Again, back to the, what you and I started off with as when you asked me about President Trump. The same rules apply to him as apply to the young African-American kid on the street. You judge him by his behavior. You don't judge him by his race, his creed, his color, his party affiliation. And if he is engaged in bad behavior, you appropriately use the kind of power that the state gives you in a way that protects security and civil liberties. It is absolutely possible to get done. It's only people who want to take a shortcut that are not really concerned about those essential American ideals that want to put us in a position of, of weakness. And if you don't do it right, you're going to cause more harm. You're going to cause more crime, not less. Uh, you talk about uh, the Constitution and you talk about uh, the limitations on rights and this is all a matter of interpretation that falls to the courts. Sure. We're in the middle of a Supreme Court nominating fight now. Uh, what, what should Democrats do with this nomination, which could shift the balance on a number of issues, uh, particularly uh, abortion, gay rights, yeah. uh, affirmative action? I, I, am of, I am of two minds about this. My political brain wants to scream at the highest decibel level because it appears to me that the Republicans stole the election in 2000. They stole Merrick Garland's seat from President Obama, and we ought to be in a different place. Having said that, we lost the election because not enough people came and voted, and elections have consequences. This has been clear for years that this was going to happen, and now we're at that moment. And so, uh, you know, I think the Democrats ought to fight really, really hard uh, to make sure that this hearing is fair and open and robust and that we understand from Judge Kavanaugh where he is on the balance of rights, responsibilities, obligations. There's no question that the court is going to tilt to the right. That is going to happen. I was really disappointed in Justice Kennedy. I thought he did a disservice to the country by leaving. He knows that President Trump is a destabilizing force. And he knows that if he would have waited a year, we might have been in a better position to have a more reasonable discussion about who that is. So I don't like that. But be that as it may, we are where we are. And we have to have a confirmation hearing. And the Senate's job is to give advice and consent. And they ought to do that in an open, fair, robust hearing and fight really hard to point out to the American public what is at stake in terms of the issues that you laid out just a minute ago. Uh, I, I can't let you go without uh, noting the fact that um, when you were young, you had a different kind of song and, da and dance in mind than, <laughs> than, did, than politics. You, you saw yourself on I Broadway. Did. You starred in musicals and uh, have a great voice and so on. You, you still sing from time to time at various occasions. I do. I aggravated my mother when I was a kid because I wanted to be everything. I wanted to be a police officer, an astronaut. I wanted to be president. I wanted to win Wimbledon. I wanted to, but I really wanted to be a professional actor. Uh, I remember, like it was yesterday, being at, a, at the movie theater and seeing Oliver Twist when I was in seventh grade, and I thought, you know what, that's what I want to do. I really love that. 
And I actually started taking singing lessons and dancing lessons and music lessons. Uh, the the, the uh, school that I went to, Jesuit High School in New Orleans, had a great theater department. I was a really good tennis player too, and I had to choose between playing tennis or doing the theater. I decided to, I decided to do theater and did a lot of it. When I was 16, I actually became a professional actor, got my actor's equity card, and was really on my way, and then chose to go to Catholic University of America, which had a great theater school. You know and that's, and, I, and I actually have a, I, I got a dual degree. I have a degree in political science and I have a degree in, in, in theater, yeah. a double major. And, uh, and I did that before Ronald Reagan became president, so I wasn't <laughs> following him along. And, and people say, oh yeah, you know, you did that because politics is theater. Well, in many ways it is. You know, we're speaking words, we're creating images, we're telling stories, you're and you're the producer the stage, and you're you're director. The stage. But but I liked it because I liked it in its essence. I mean, I actually love the work that great actors and um, and great singers do, and I've enjoyed it my entire life. I haven't been able to do much of it because I got. Stuck. Well, you're free now, right? You, I am free. I'm looking so for a gig. There are producers I'm out looking, there. I am straight up looking for a gig. If anybody. Now you you, one. you played uh, Che Guevara. I did you played I Jesus? Did. I did. It's all down. Yeah. It's all down. Well, president, that. president is a big I'll role, man. <laughs> Mitch Landrieu, it's good to be with you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of the Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.